Eddie Fisher was an all-American kind of guy. He was a graduate of the Citadel, a handsome, charismatic high school teacher, and a basketball coach at an elite prep school, Porter Goud, in Charleston, South Carolina. Fisher was so revered by students, they dedicated the 1981 yearbook to him. What few knew was Eddie Fisher had a secret. He was a serial sex abuser. He'd molested dozens of young boys over a decade at Porter Goud. Fisher's acts left emotional damage in his wake. An unusual number of Porter Goud boys would commit suicide over the years, including six of 49 from the class of 1979. Fisher was convicted of his crimes in 1997 and died in prison, but scars remain. How did Eddie Fisher escape detection for so long? Paige Tomac, a 1985 graduate of Porter Goud, needed to know. In her debut film, What Haunts Us, Tomac shares her journey to bring dignity to the victims and come to grips with this dark memory from her past. She joins me today from her home in Los Angeles. Welcome, Paige. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So this is a film that was living in your subconscious for a long period of time. When did you decide that it was time to make it into a film? When was this a film that I knew? You know, it's such a great question because I'm guessing in my soul, I probably always knew I had to make it. And then when I became a mom, everything, the whole world shifted for me. The whole, when you become a parent, like certainly for me, the world I just saw the world really differently. And once I had my, my son, I realized that I had someone that I really needed to protect. And I hadn't learned anything from what happened at my school because, because we never talked about it. So I thought, God, I need, to, I need to kind of understand my past in order to be able to, to protect my child in the present. And that's when I started doing this kind of deep dive investigation on what happened. And it became very clear and very obvious to me that this needed to be documented and someone needed, the, needed you know, the world kind of needed to see it. So this film features two sets of interviews from about 15 years apart. Was that an intentional story device on your part? Yeah, well, when I started doing the research, and believe me, it was tough. It took a couple of years before I could, two years really, before I could even turn a camera on anyone because, you know, I had to gain everyone's trust. I had to, nobody wanted to talk about it. It was really hard to get people to agree to, to interview. But slowly but surely, I would come across somebody who would, who would talk to me. And then they would say, you know, you really should talk to so-and-so. And then they would send me to someone else and someone else. And they came across someone who... Um, was really excited to talk to me about it and, and said that, you know, years ago, a group of us um, decided that we wanted to document this. And so we hired a screenwriter to come in and sort of tell our story. And what she had done was filmed all of us for her research. She had, so she, he said, so I have hours and hours and hours of footage of us back then talking about the case and talking about what we had experienced, would you like to see that? And I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I would like to see that. And, um, and I, he, he sent me, you know, like a hundred hours of footage and I just sat and I turned it on and I just cried because these were these boys. I remembered them from high school and here they were, you know, starting to be men. They're older now, but they were men still so affected by this telling the story 
that I didn't know, but I remembered them from school and I was heartbroken by watching this. And then I reached out to those people slowly and asked if they still wanted to talk. And so then we talked again in the present. What's really interesting is the audio is matched so well that you really can't tell when you cut from one of the old interviews to one of the new interviews. And in doing, you really see how, how much life these guys have lived, how much they have grown philosophically, um, just how much wisdom they have accrued. Oh, yeah. I mean, just like you mentioned a moment ago, it really shows you how, you know, how abuse stays and the ripple effect of they're telling the same story, de- you know, decades apart. But it's the same story and it's still affecting them and it's still weighing on them. And it's 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 part of who they are. And I thought that was really an important, important thing to shine a light on. So much of the film is carried by uh, animation that serves as kind of a visual canvas for memory. How did you and the animator land on that style? It's not stark. It's not foreboding. It's actually almost calming and in some cases kind of warm. Yeah, well, um, thank you. It's it's absolutely beautiful animation um, that we, we worked hard on. I mean, uh, my animator was actually in Spain and uh, he's incredible. And we would talk, we talked a lot over the phone. And I, and I, listen, this was my first time making a film. So my, my sort of my, uh, my language with people like my, my composer or my animator, I didn't have the right language. So I literally was very honest with them. I would call and say, listen, I don't, here's all I can, I can only speak emotionally right now. So I'm going to tell you emotionally how I feel, emotionally how I want this to look. If you can translate that for me, that's amazing. And and they could. I mean, David could. He was incredible as my animator. Nathan was my composer. He also uh, was able to translate my emotions. And that's what we did. And, we, and, and for David, we'd go back and forth, back and forth. He'd send me images. And I would say, no, that just doesn't feel right. More like this maybe or this. I would send him an animation that I was inspired by. Um, and then he just came up with something, I, which I thought was so beautiful. So the primary antagonist at Porter Gow died within a few years of Fisher's arrest, uh, and yet the film doesn't really spend much time documenting how they navigated their own disgrace. Was that your way of not wanting to dignify them beyond their roles in the scandal? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, no, again, no, also nobody was talking about them. There was no one around to talk about those people. And, and if there were, they weren't going to talk about it. So I really only could you know, I, whatever I gathered, I, I tried to put on screen and, and, you know, the story, the story wasn't about them. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was about us and it was about, uh, and it was about the power and courage of someone who was able to stand up and, and, and make, and, and continue his life while all these people couldn't even like take what they had done. Um, and, and, and handled that in different types of ways. So it really it wasn't about them, but it, they were important parts of the story. They were important parts for people, I thought, an audience to understand how this all works because that's what I was struggling with as a mother and as a person. I was like, I know sort of what happened. Of course, I really didn't know everything that happened, but I thought I knew what happened, but how did it happen? Like, how are these things allowed to happen? Because they're always the same story. I mean, whether, you know, whether it's Ohio State or it's, you know, you know, uh, you know, you name it, uh, you know, uh, all, I can't even right now, I can't even begin to think, you know, I'm talking about, but 
they're always the same story. <laughs> and we're always shocked by it. So I wanted to, I was thinking like, you know, how do we let these things happen? And, that, and that's really what I wanted to explore. You state clearly in the film that we are the problem. And by that, you mean all of us. Was that a thesis you set out to validate by making the film? Or was it a conclusion you made from having made the film? Oh, it was absolutely a conclusion I made. I did not set out. I did not believe, I did not, I didn't understand it until I made the movie. In fact, the movie was going to be something really different than what it turned out to be, which was really my great lesson of my great, my, my film school, documentary film school for me, which is if you sit back and trust the process, your film will show itself to you. And I was, I'm not that person. I, I worked in narrative films. Uh, my husband's a movie producer. He makes mostly narrative films. So my, I knew exactly what this movie was going to be. I, I was very clear when I, you know, I, I involved my writer. I sent him a treatment. I was like, this is exactly what the movie is. And I plotted it out. And then what, what happens as happens in life and everything is, no, nothing happens the way you anticipate it being. And if you are, are able to let go the movie the movie will become something better than you ever thought it could um, because it will show you what it needs to be. So I had no idea that's what I was going to come to terms with. Um, it's tough making documentaries. My God. I mean, it's tough making all movies, but especially when you're making a film about real people and real trauma and, um, and my fear of, because I was so connected, it wasn't like I was someone for hire, people had hired to come in and make a movie. I mean, I, this was, these were my people. This was my hometown, my school, people I cared about, my story. And, and it was, um, you know, it's, it's, it's scary to do that. And once I, you know, took a breath and sat back and said, you know, if I'm going to do this, I may as well do it right. Um, that's when it all, it all just sort of happened, came together. So moving back to the story a little bit, Eddie Fisher, the teacher involved who abused scores of students over the course of decades, he seemed mostly cooperative in his interviews with detectives. Do you think that was instrumental in the resolution of the tragedy? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a scary thing to watch. I mean, the truth is, I got those tapes. Someone, you know, once I kept investigating, someone sent me those tapes and I was terrified to watch them. I mean, I put, I remember putting them in the, the player and I sat, I made my husband sit down with me. I was like, I'm not sure I can watch this by myself. And we sat down and first of all, it was shocking to see him after all these years. It was, it was so shocking to see him and talk, hear him say those things. And what struck really my husband very much was like, oh my God, he just looks like a kind of a nice old man. And when he talks about these things, it's like, it, it's like he can't even believe it himself. Like, I, I mean, these kids were as big as I was. I mean, I, you know, sort of, I don't know. I didn't really do anything wrong. And it was terrifying to watch that. And when people saw that in the film, they were very struck by that. They're very struck by that. And it flipped I flipped some people out, some of the people who, some of the survivors who had not seen that before. Um, it was very hard for them to see that, to see him. Yeah, it's very striking that at one point he answers a question in a way that I think it dawns on him what he's done. He folds his hands, he looks down, and he looks, I don't know if it's contrition, but he looks like the gravity of the whole thing is really settling in. And I, I wonder, is that kind of a, an example of how unchallenged he was throughout 
the decades that he never had any mirror in which to see himself. No, he didn't. He was unchallenged. He was he was given the keys to the kingdom, <laughs> you know, um, for many years and was able to do it many schools um, before and after. And, um, you know, it's a it's it's pretty terrifying. So you had the backing of a couple of big names in making this film. One was the big name producer, Frank Marshall. Um, what, what role did those folks play in helping you get over the finish line? Well, I, it was interesting. Every, again, a great learning lesson for me. I mean, I, Frank had, is a friend of ours and Frank had made a movie with my husband. Um, they had made a documentary together called the Armstrong lie, Lance Armstrong documentary. And when I was saying to my husband, I'm like, I'm going to make a documentary and I just need you. I said, I need you to support me. I need you to executive produce that for me. So I don't know what that means yet, but just be there for me. And he's like, great, whatever you need, I'm here. And, and I had so many questions and, and I, at one point Matt said, just go call Frank. Like Frank will help you. Frank knows how to do this stuff. Just ask him, ask him questions. So I went and sat down with Frank and I said, Frank, I need a producer. I need a real producer on this. And I need, how do I raise money? I don't know how to do any of these things. And he said, well, tell me the story. And I pitched him the idea. And he looked at me and he said, why am I not executive? Why am I not producing this movie? And I was like, I don't know. Do you want to? And he was like, yes. And he was really taken with it. And he and Matt decided to sort of act as these executive producer godfathers. And, and then... Um, Frank helped me find Sarah Gibson, who was my actual producer. And I met her and within like literally 48 hours, we were, we were off and making a movie. Um, and they were just, you know, I, I used them very carefully, Frank and Matt, because, and it's hard because I obviously live with that, but I, I was very careful about, I knew what they were good for and they were good creatively when I needed them. So I would go off and make a cut of the movie and I would, then show them a cut and ask for notes. But it was, I only did that like in the six years, I might've done that three or four times because I didn't want to sort of like, you know, wear them out. I didn't want to, you know, and, and I would have, it was interesting. They would have points about things which sometimes they were fantastic. And other times I was like, nope, I do not agree with that at all. And Matt and I, it was very funny. I'm like, nope, I disagree with that completely. I'm going to put this in the movie or take this out of the movie. And it was really interesting, but I used them sort of, um, you know, when I needed them. Um, and then, and then they're also, they're extremely connected. So, you know, if I needed some, you know, at one point I was like, you know, I need you to call so-and-so I need you to get so-and-so to see this movie or, and that's, they were great for, or in, in those ways as well. So zooming out just a little bit, have you reflected on what it is that makes people so reluctant to step forward when something so wrong is happening in plain sight? Is it some sort of bystander effect? Yeah. I mean, the truth is, um, I don't think, I don't think we want to believe it can be true. You know, I spent a lot of time talking to Patty Fitzgerald about this. She's an, um, an amazing woman who helped consult on this film. She, she's an expert on helping us understand how to keep our kids safe. And I've talked to her a lot and she says to me, we don't really want to believe it can be true. Like the notion that like Uncle Timmy would be molesting my child makes, you know, and I've allowed my child to be with that person. I don't want to believe it's true about the person. And if it is, what does that say about me as a parent? You know, what have I done? How have I failed to protect my child? And I think, you know, I get that. 
you know, I completely get that. And then you're, you, and, and as women, we like to also, especially as women, we like to sort of, you know, we don't always listen to our gut on things. We, we're pretty much right all the time, but we don't trust our gut. So sometimes if we get a funny feeling about someone, you know, we push it away. And the notion that we could ruin someone's else, someone else's life if I, on a notion that I had or just a feeling I had, you know, we're forgetting about the fact that a little person's life is, is possibly being ruined. And so we, we tend to swat it away, these bad thoughts, because they're bad. And we don't want to believe them. So in interviews, you've been remarkably understanding of people who are angry that you made this film. And you could say by extension, maybe perpetuating the silence, ironically, in which this kind of abuse flourishes. How, how do you handle that conflict? You know, I just handle it with peace, to be really honest with you. I, am, I have learned to be deeply compassionate for these people who have gone through such deep trauma. I mean, we all go through our own trauma. Every one of us has our own personal trauma. And we are allowed to process it the way we want. It, it's, it's, it's ours. And if people are allowed to do that, I mean, that's all I can say about it. You know, you want, if you need to talk this out and, and talk about it with me, and if you wanted to do that, I was here to listen. And if you were angry at me for, you know, refusing to keep it under the rug and for wanting to find out more, that's your right too. But you have no, but that has nothing to do with me. You know, I'm just going to go on my journey. I'm going to stand up for my child and everyone else's ch children and do what I think is right for me and what I thought was right for my hometown and my school, which ultimately I think was really right because the extraordinary, out I mean, as many, as much as there are some people who to this day won't talk to me, the outpouring of love and gratitude has been overwhelming. And I know I've made a difference and that's what I set out to do. That's uh, to understand this and to at least start some healing for people I, in a town that I cared about. And I'm really proud of that. And I, I, I know that I did that. What would you say to a teacher who really wants to do more, wants to go beyond just the strict boundaries of being a teacher, but might be a bit frightened to go into those kind of gray spaces where they feel like they're giving a little bit of extra to a student? What, what do you say to those teachers in this kind of environment where it, it is a little scary to put yourself out there. Yeah, but I mean, yes, I've never really haven't thought about that. I mean, I, I, listen, I, I think it's really powerful teachers for kids, coaches for kids. My child is a, sort of a very elite lacrosse player and he's had extraordinary, he has extraordinary coaches in his life. And I see how the, the, the um, I see how they have, what they've done for him. They've given him tremendous confidence. They've been friends for, to him when, I, when you know, he didn't want to talk to his parents about certain things. Um, so I think teachers play a very powerful role in kids' lives and, um, and mentors. And I think that's a really important thing to do. And, uh, so I, and I think we should be educating our kids. I mean, since Jackson was really, really little, I was really clear through Patty. Through, I, I was very appropriate with how I discussed with him that he was in charge of his body. And he was, you know, his body was his, that his parents were here to say to him, he could say anything in the world to his parents. We would always believe him. We were here for him. Um, and I, without fear, I, I empowered him. So I think it's important to empower our children. And I think it's important to be great teachers and great mentors. And, you know, th that's what I think. I think those, all those roles are really, really important, you know? So the big question, have you shown this film to your son? I, I would imagine it's a pretty awesome 
teaching tool? You know, it's interesting. I, I haven't. And he just turned 14. And I was literally thinking the other day, I'm ready to show it. He's, he's ready to see it. Because there's some pretty intense... I mean, we've, he knows everything about the story. Like, we've talked about it. He's, he knows everything about it. But I haven't, sh- I haven't shown him the film because there are some moments that I thought for a while ha- were, were, are hard. I mean, the, you know, the notion that this could happen like the way it did, I think is really terrifying. So, but I actually think he's old enough to see it now. And I, I'd be happy to, to I, would, I would love to show it to him. So maybe I'll do that. Maybe that'll be tonight's viewing, tonight's pandemic viewing. Yes. <laughs> so do you have any uh, new projects you're working on now that you've been through your own film school and you're ready for number two? Oh my gosh. I, it's funny. I have like a stack of projects on my desk that I, they're really interesting things that I'm really interested in. And, um, I made a couple of short things, just personal things. Like I, I just made this, I just made something short that I loved for, as a gift for a bunch of people who I loved. Um, about the Grateful Dead. This is this tiny little thing that I've been working on. I'm, almost, I'm just pretty much done with, but it's just a personal thing. And it was really fun to get back in there and do it. And there are other, there's just others. And people call me a lot to get involved with things. But the truth is, it takes everything from you. To, to, to really do something like this and to do it well. And I don't think I'd ever make a documentary about something that wasn't very powerful and potentially, you know, controversial. I think that's this kind of stuff that I'm drawn to. Um, and I mean, even my, great, my short Grateful Dead documentary, there's like I made as a gift for my husband. It's very, it's, it's very emotional. It's about something. Uh, it's not, it's about something else than the Grateful Dead, even though it's sort of about the Grateful Dead. So it, it really takes a part of your soul to do these. And I'm quite, I'm not quite ready to do that yet. Um, I really, you know, I just am really psyched to be a mom and to be on the lacrosse field and to be politically involved in all the things that I've been involved in the last couple of years before I throw myself into another movie. So let me wrap with this. What would you tell young filmmakers that are getting ready to embark on their big first projects? What did you learn from this experience that you're like, oh God, I wish somebody had told me that before I started. <laughs> Everything. Well, first of all, well, my main thing is really what, what I said earlier, which was that if you just have, you know, the confidence to let the movie show you what it was, what it wants to be, it will happen. Because again, I really was clear on what I thought this movie was. And, and what it was, was going to be you know, I, I sat down with my school. I went to my school and I sat down with them before I shot anything and said, I'm going to make this film and I want you to make it with me. Like I sat down with everyone at the school and I said, here's the truth. I cried to them. I said, here's the truth. Here's what happened. It happened in the past. So please be a part of it with me. Um, let's go show the world that, you know, not on our watch. These, this poor God will not let this happen again. And they, and the, and I really thought they were going to be in the movie and be a part of it. And when I, they made the call to me, when their attorneys and head of the board called me and said that they were not, um, I mean, unless I gave them final cut of my film, which I refused to do, um, then I, I literally got incredibly sad and depressed and for about two weeks sat or I cried for about two weeks. I'm like, I don't have a movie anymore. I don't have a movie anymore. I don't know what the movie is going to be. And then I, and then it dawned on me one day, oh, that's what the movie is about. <laughs> like there's, we're still so silent about it. And that's what I had, you know, so it's kind of showed, it's, uh, it showed me what it wanted to be. And I think 
I, I think that's something for young filmmakers to really, really, really appreciate, like just kind of go with it and um, it will take you where you need to be. And also just start shooting. I was terrified to start. I was terrified to make the first phone calls. And I had, you know, other filmmakers who I talked to say things like, just pick up the phone, just start making the calls. And when I finally did, it was just, it was a fantastic, fantastic thing. Well, Paige, I thought this was a tremendous movie. I, Aww, it was thank you. Beautifully done, but also I think maybe the most effective treatment of the subject because it, it felt like it was actionable. Wonderful film. Uh, please do another. And thank you so much for taking some time with me today. Thank you. That means so much to me because that's exactly the kind of movie I wanted to make. I had said so many times, I've seen so many movies about the topic. I don't want to make another horror film. I want to make something that makes people stop and think and realize they, had a, they can have a hand in making good things happen. So thanks for saying that. Paige, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Paige Tolmack. Her documentary, What Haunts Us, can be seen on YouTube, Google Play, and Vudu. It can also be seen for free on Tubi and on Amazon Prime Video, if you're a Prime member. Join me next time when I speak to Dan Weinschenker. Weinschenker is a poet who teaches regular folks to find the documentary beauty within their own lives. See you then. <laughs>